can the book of Revelation really be understood amidst all the prophetic language and mysterious symbols? How is it relevant to the 21st century? What is the controversy between good and evil all about? How and when will it end? These and many other questions will be answered, providing amazing clarity to the conditions we see in our world today. This seminar will bring you face to face with Jesus in a new and wonderful way, leading you to the most momentous decisions of your life. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. It's uh, my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to our Revelation Prophecy Seminar. Tonight we are studying our second lesson, which is lesson number two, and we're going to learn all about Jesus, who is the star of the book of Revelation. You know, tonight we are going to dive down deep into who Jesus is. We're going to look at his divinity, uh, Jesus active in creation. We're also going to look at whether he is the Messiah and whether he came on time died on time and then we will deduce from that whether we believe he'll come back on time so this is a very full and expansive lesson and i'm so glad that you have joined us tonight would you join me at the top of page one many are totally unaware that the star of the drama of revelation is jesus christ revelation discloses some very extraordinary and exciting things about Jesus. In fact, the key purpose of the book is to help us see Jesus in a wonderful new light. You know, the name Revelation means revealing or unveiling. And the introductory words of the book make clear what is being revealed. In fact, the first five words are the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go down to the note at the bottom of the page. Please note that the name of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.1 and not the revelation of St. John the Divine as men have named the book. The book was not written to reveal John the Revelator but rather the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus and his magnificent loving plans that are being revealed or unveiled in the book of Revelation. When we keep this fantastic fact in mind and look for Jesus in our study of Revelation, we will find it one of the most heartwarming and stimulating experiences of life. You know, Jesus is anxious and ready to shower upon us his exceptional love as we consider Revelation, his special book. So with a prayer in our hearts, let's notice some of the thrilling truths about Jesus as revealed in the book of Revelation. Friends, you know that I always begin the seminar with my four or five theme questions. So I'm going to ask you to turn to page two. Now, before we get into question number one, um, let me share some of the main themes of this lesson. We're going to look at what does Jesus Christ actually look like. 
Number two, when did God choose that Jesus should die for the sins of the world? Three, what special time period in the Old Testament proves Jesus is really the prophesied Messiah? And four, in what specific years was Jesus baptized and later crucified? And can we know those dates? So friends, tonight we are going to look at a prophecy that is carved off another prophecy. Tonight's 70-week, 490-day-year prophecy is actually carved off a larger prophecy, which is the 2,300-day-year prophecy of Daniel 8.14. But tonight, fortunately, we're just going to deal with the first part of it. So it's a really, really big topic, and therefore, I think it would be a really great idea if we sought the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Tonight, we ask for a special anointing of wisdom and understanding that we might be taken deeply into your word and discover that Jesus truly is the Messiah and the star of the book of Revelation is my prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So friends, I'm asking you to join me at the top of page two in our lesson guides, and we're starting off with question one. Jesus is called by at least 37 different names or descriptive titles in the book of Revelation. Amazingly, he's mentioned by one of his names or titles or by a pronoun representing one of those names over 137 times in the first three chapters and over 250 times in the entire book of Revelation. Do you have any doubt that Revelation is a book which has something very important to say to us regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? And friends, I've written, obviously not, uh, that Jesus is the star of the book of Revelation. And now I just want to share with you the note under question one. So the Revelation Seminar has prepared a special exhibit that lists the names and titles of Jesus that are found in the book of Revelation. And there on that page on the screen is a copy of it. And there are 36 of his amazing titles. Jesus is like a diamond. He sparkles from all directions. And we see in those new um, chips in that diamond, those cuts, we see more of his amazing character, the beautiful Jesus. We're in question two, halfway down page two in our lesson tonight. So number two says, how does Revelation describe Jesus Christ? And we're directed to Revelation chapter one. We're going to look at 13, 14, 15 and 16. Those are the verses. John writes, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps or chest with a golden girdle or belt. Verse 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. It's interesting, folks, isn't it, that today white hair is scorn, but it's interesting, the description we get of Jesus. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. Verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Verse 16, 
and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. I'd like to pause there and address, I'm sure, somebody's question. What does it mean, the two-edged sword? Friends, the TES or the two-edged sword is symbolic of Christ's authority to judge and especially of his power to actually execute judgment. That the sword has two edges together with the fact that it is said to be sharp would seem to imply the decisiveness, the incisiveness of his decisions and the effectiveness of his acts of judgment. So here on the screen, we can see a single edged sword, but this description really is of a sharp two edged sword. Is there any more enlightenment that we can get from God's word? Yes, there is. Hebrews chapter four and verse 12 says, for the word of God is alive and what is it? Powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. And it's that sword that cuts into our mind and heart and reveals to us our disconnection and our sinfulness when we go away from God. Friends, I want to challenge you tonight, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your situation, I'm asking you tonight, are you reading enough of God's word? Are you reading God's word every day? Friends, I want to tell you, as you start reading God's word, and ask him to give you a love for it, a hunger and thirsting after righteousness, that you will find a great fulfillment and peace comes into your life. So I'm asking you, why won't you start that process tomorrow? So let's go to our answers in question number two in part A. The being described as Jesus was, he's had a special garment that went down to the foot. He wore a golden girdle, his hair was white like wool or snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He had feet that burned like fine brass in a furnace or a fire. His voice was of the sound of many waters and his face was shining as bright as the sun. That's really some description, isn't it? The note says, see Daniel 10, 5 to 9 for another word picture of Jesus. Both John and Revelation, both John in Revelation 1, 17 and Daniel fell to the ground faint and helpless when they saw him. That leads us to our second heading tonight, which is our wonderful saviour. I direct you to question three at the bottom of page two. What has Jesus Christ actually done for us? We're going to return to a verse that we looked at last time in Revelation seminar, lesson number one, Revelation, the open book. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, under him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Friends, you know what? Jesus has loved us so much that he wants to save us for all eternity. And we can be washed and cleansed if we confess our sins. First John chapter 1 and verses 7 to 9. We are told there that Jesus' blood will cleanse us from all our sins. And that's a precious thought, isn't it? That the blood of Jesus can wipe and wash our sins away. 
Question four, what else has Jesus Christ done for us? We go to the next verse in Revelation uh, chapter one. We, we move on to verse six. Thank you so much to all those who prepared the lesson and did their homework. You'll get a lot more out of it tonight. And he hath made us kings and priests. There's our answer. Unto God and to his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, friends, some translators actually translate that, not just that he's made us kings and priests, but that he has made us a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, friends, we can be priests in that we don't have to go to an earthly priest and that we offer to God as priests our prayers. We offer intercession and we also offer adoration and uh, thanksgiving to God. Let me share with the note with you at the bottom of page two. In Old Testament times, men had to approach God through the priest. But Jesus changed all that, didn't he? He made us priests so that we may approach him directly. Um, I guess it doesn't get better than that. That's absolutely fantastic. I'm sure we can all say thank you, Jesus, and amen. Please join me at the top of page three, and we're in question number five. What is it according to the 24 elders of Revelation 5 that makes Jesus worthy to redeem us? We're going to Revelation chapter five. We're going to look at verses um, eight, nine, and 12. This is an artist's depiction of not only the 24 elders in heaven, with Jesus seated in the middle of those thrones, but also the four beasts. The four beasts come up repeatedly in the book of Revelation, but in my daily study at the moment, I'm working through the very challenging book of Ezekiel. And there I've been studying about the four beasts who crop up in the first few chapters. It's absolutely fascinating. Join me in Revelation 5, 8, 9, and then we jump to 12. What is it according to the 24 elders of Revelation 5 that makes Jesus worthy to redeem us? And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odours, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse nine, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing what is it according to the 24 elders of revelation 5 that makes jesus worthy to redeem us they said for thou wast slain and has redeemed us friends what does the word redeemed mean i remember the story of a little boy who made a little wooden boat and as he sailed it, he lost it. He was down, going down the main street past the pawnbrokers, and there he saw the boat that he had made in the window. And he went and told the owner, hey, I made that boat. That's mine. The owner said, no, sorry, son. I've paid good money for that, and I'm not giving it away. You come back when you got the money. So the little boy went away, and he worked hard at home. He went around the neighbors pestering them for jobs. And one day he went back, and he got that boat in his hands. And he paid money for it. And the shopkeeper heard the little boy say as he went out the door, you know, I own you twice. 
the first time I made you and the second time I bought you back. Friends, I want to tell you that is a brilliant explanation and illustration of what the word redeem means. For we are redeemed, for Jesus has brought us back from sin and the devil. Let me share with you the note under question five. The title lamb referring to Jesus is used 26 times in the book of Revelation. Jesus is clearly the lamb of God in John 1.29. But in Old Testament times, lambs were sacrificed when people sinned. These lambs typified Jesus who took the people's sins and died as their atonement. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died on Calvary in our place and for our sins. Through Jesus, we are set free. No wonder the people of Revelation 5 cried out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain in Revelation 5 and verse 9. Join me in question 6, halfway down page 3. Was Jesus' sacrifice an afterthought? Or was it planned before sin entered? Now, that's one of our quiz questions. So it's a very, very important question. Let's go to Revelation 13 and verse 8. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Friends, this is not speaking about worshipping Jesus. This is speaking about worshipping the first beast of Revelation 13, for their names are not written in the book of life, uh, which was from the Lamb, which is Jesus, who was slain from the foundation of the world. All right, so here's our answer. Was Jesus' sacrifice an afterthought or was it planned before sin entered? It must have been planned before sin ended because it was worked out and chosen and planned before the foundation of the world. Let's now check those other scriptures. Before we do, I have a modern translation. Let's go to the amplified uh, version of Revelation 13, 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will fall down and worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, who has been slain as a willing sacrifice. In Ephesians 1.4, we read, according as he hath chosen us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then 1 Peter 1, 18-20. Peter wrote, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, he's speaking here to the Jews, you weren't brought back by God with silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. So the Jews were trusting too much in their ancestry back to Abraham. So he's trying to tell them what they were redeemed with, verse 19. But you were redeemed and brought back from sin with what? The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And that lamb, Jesus Christ, who verily was foreordained or chosen, was planned that he should die before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So friends, we have three New Testament witnesses all telling us the same thing. John the Revelator, Paul the Apostle, and Peter the Apostle in those texts we've just looked up. What did they tell us? Very clearly, they're telling us that this happened before the foundation of the world. Join me in question seven. We're asked to read chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. Note particularly the thrilling and awesome episode about the sealed book, which no one could open. So who finally opened that book? We're in Revelation chapter 5, 6 to 9. 
And I beheld John wrote, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odours, which is the old English word for incense. What are those odours or incense which are, they stand for symbolically, the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Friends, what a glorious conclusion that is in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. So who finally opened the book? It's obvious there that it was Jesus the Lamb. Well, friends, there were some, uh, some points there I think we need to go over. So just have a look now at the screen. So I think I've shared with you already that the word lamb is very, very important in the book of Revelation being mentioned 26 times. So Revelation is always tied back to Jesus, the star of the book of Revelation, our subject tonight. Now, the number seven, as you know, denotes uh, from our last lesson, perfection or completeness. But seven horns, horns stand in the Bible for strength or powers. And you can find more about that in the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. And there's the reference Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 3. You might like to write that into your lesson guides. Well, what about the seven eyes? Seven being perfection and completeness. Eyes standing for wisdom and intelligence. You can find out more about that in Revelation 1 and verse 4 and Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. Let's hurry on to question 8 at the bottom of page 3. What do you think this book is that Jesus has the authority to open in Revelation 1 and verse 5? And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with what? It was sealed with seven seals. What do you think this book is that Jesus has the authority to open? Well, friends, I'm calling it the book sealed with seven seals. Let me share with you the note. You know, the book is not named, but it obviously from the story of Revelation chapter 5 has to do with the people who are saved from the earth. It is of utmost interest that Revelation in several other places speaks of a book or books which greatly affect the people on the earth. Note the following. So friends, I'd like you to come over the page and we're going to get the answer to that question. But before we do, I'd like to tell you there are actually three books, three books in heaven. We're discussing one of them tonight, but I'd like to remind you, not only is there the book of life, there's also the book of remembrance. If you don't know much about that, write in Malachi 3.16. Also the book GC 480 to 484. If you know what I'm talking about, then that also covers the book of remembrance. That's GC 480 to 484. And then also the book of sins is covered in that uh, section as well. And you can look up Psalm 130 and verse 3. So, friends, tonight we're looking at the main judgment book in the book of Revelation. Then we're at the top of page 4. 
we are going to look at Revelation 3 and 17, Revelation 21 and Revelation chapter 20. Let's find out what the books are and why they're so important. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he that overcometh. Isn't that interesting? Christians are to be overcomers of temptation and sin and the devil. For he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in what? White raiment, these are special beautiful clothes of heaven and i will not blot out his name out of the what there it is the book of life but i'll confess his name before my father and before his angels another backup text and this is of a beast that we wouldn't want to follow the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition perdition is an old english word for h e double l and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life, there's our answer, from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, if you go back to that sentence there, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, some people have thought that the names are written there from the start. But friends, it's the book of life, not the names that are written there so the book of life is there the names are not written there from the start in other words god's not involved in predestination some to be saved and some to be lost he allows us free choice revelation 21 27 and there shall in no wise or no way enter into heaven anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination and abomination is a hateful thing a disgusting thing or maketh a lie but they which are written in thee what the Lamb's Book of Life. There's our second answer. And then our third answer, and I saw the dead, John writes, he's speaking about those who'd been dead, but had been resurrected. Small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. There's our answer. And another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So, friends, the main judgment book in the book of Revelation is uh, it speaks of the book of life. It calls it in more descriptive terms, the Lamb's book of life. It mentions both of the books and the book of life. Let me share with you the note at the top of the page. Please look at the screen. Notice that these books are all mentioned in connection with the judgment. Revelation 13.8 makes it clear that the saved will have their names written in the book of life. And according to Revelation 3.5, those who turn away from Christ will have their names removed from that book. The sobering message of Revelation chapter 5 is that only Jesus can tell who is saved and who is lost. He and he only reads the heart and knows who are truly his. This is why it's so imperative to place our lives in his hands. He alone cleanses us from sin, 1 John 1, 9. He alone is able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy in Jude 24. Truly there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4, 12. This is why John in Revelation 5 was so tearful and hopeless till Jesus appeared. It also explains why the elders burst forth with rejoicing when Jesus intervened for the people from this earth whom he loves. Friends, I know when we speak about the judgment, if you have a look on the screen, that people are very afraid. But I want to tell you the coming judgment 
is good news because God's people will be vindicated. Isn't that good news? So why would we fear that judgment? Two points. Number one, the judgment that's coming is nothing to fear. Why? Because Jesus Christ is there to represent us for the Father. He firstly represents us as our high priest and lawyer. But secondly, he then represents us as our judge. That's why it's important to know the judge ahead of time. There's a second reason the coming judgment is good news. The heavenly judgment sits and it will make what is wrong down here now eventually right. Friends, are you hearing about judgments in the courts? People being let off back in the community who should never be let off. Every time I get upset and dismayed, I think about the fact that there is a Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is up there. It's not an earthly court. The Supreme Court or the High Court, the Court of the Most High, is actually that court that rules in heaven. And one day, those judgments are going to be made right. Time to get into our third heading tonight. We're going to find out about the origin and power of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus really? Is he more than just the baby Jesus? The answer is he absolutely is. Question nine, did Jesus have his beginning when born of Mary? You know, and most people think that that's when Jesus got started. That's when Jesus or that name got started. Or did he exist prior to his Bethlehem birth? Let's go to Revelation 22, 6 and 7. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. The angels talking to John the Revelator and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Did Jesus have his beginning when born of Mary or did he exist prior to his Bethlehem birth? Friends, Jesus Christ was the Lord God of the holy prophets. Jesus Christ, but not the baby Jesus Christ, existed prior to eternity. And he was the Lord God of the holy prophets of the Old Testament. Let me share with you a little bit more on that. In Revelation 22, 6 and 7, it calls Jesus the Lord God of the Holy Prophets. See 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, which also says that Jesus is the one who inspired the prophets of old. Other Bible passages say very clearly that Jesus did indeed exist before coming to earth to be born of Mary. Now, we don't have time to look up all those texts, but I tell you one of these uh, passages we must look up. It's very, very important. I'm going to Jesus' special prayer to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in John 17, verse 5 and 24, this will tell us whether Jesus existed prior to being born as baby Jesus and the man Christ Jesus. The son says, And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Friends, I don't think it could be clearer than that, that Jesus existed with the Father back in eternity past. Verse 24, Father, I will tell, sorry, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. He's talking about the disciples, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Friends, let me just direct your attention to the screen. I have a number of texts that I'd like to share with you on this. Friends, I want to tell you that whether you go back into eternity past or eternity future, there never was a time when Jesus Christ existed. Friends, 
the name Jesus Christ is specific to him being the baby Jesus and also Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. But in the Old Testament, if you know your Bible, you will know he's called Jehovah. You'll know he's called the angel or messenger of Jehovah and the angel or messenger of my presence. He's also called the commander of the heavenly host to Joshua and some know him as Michael the archangel. Friends, we don't have the time tonight to look through these exhaustive messages of who really was the God of the Old Testament. What I want to tell you, it's a fascinating study. And you can take a screenshot of that and you can follow that up for homework. That is an absolutely brilliant study that we might know more about Jesus Christ, the star of the drama of the book of Revelation. We're at the bottom of page four in question 10. Who especially is mentioned as involved in the creation of the world and the creation of man? We're in Revelation 3 and verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen. I'm going to pause there and break up that verse. What's that word Amen mean? Most people just know that the word Amen actually just means a reference to the end of a prayer. But friends, the word Amen actually means truth or to be trustworthy. Let me give you a text that's not in your lesson to prove that. You might like to write down Isaiah 65, 16. Isaiah 65, 16, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the what? The God of truth. There's the word there. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Now, that word truth in the Hebrew is actually the word amen. So I've proved to you now that the word amen means truth and is heavily tied in as a huge characteristic of God. We go back to our original text in Revelation 3 and verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen. This is the God who cannot lie. This is the God who tells the truth. He's also known as the faithful and true witness. Do we know who this God is? Here's another verse, Revelation 1, 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the what? Ah, there's the answer. The faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Friends, if you're disappointed with the rulers of the earth, then I tell you tonight that Jesus Christ is still their ruler and he's still in control. So to finish this off, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the truthful one, the faithful and true witness, who we know as Jesus, who was also the beginning of the creation of God. Now, friends, I want to tell you that that statement, the beginning of the creation of God, is often misunderstood that Jesus was the first person created. Let me help you understand the etymology of the word beginning. So some of you will know that this is the Sydney Opera House, and I want to introduce to you the architect and designer of the Sydney Opera House. This is Jan Utzen, who uh, has, is passed and is no longer around. Friends, have I told you Jorn Utzen was the beginning of the Sydney Opera House? You would not think he was the first brick laid, because if I say he was the beginning of that, it, there is a passive sense for the word beginning, which means that it still refers to the source or the commencement or that which is first. Then the active sense of beginning is beginner, which means the one who begins something. So friends, coming back here, Jesus is the truthful one. 
He's the one who cannot lie as the faithful and true witness when we live in a world full of lies. And he's also the beginner of the creation of God. For it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How do we know that Jesus was the beginner of God's creation? In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse or various manners spoke in time past under the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, the father spoke in these last days unto us by who? Here's our answer, his son, whom he hath appointed heir or the inheritor of all things, by whom also God made the worlds. God the father made the worlds. Who did he make it by? By his son. So who especially is mentioned as involved in the creation of the world and the creation of man? The answer is his son, Jesus Christ. I'm sharing with you the note at top of page five. Friends, the word beginning in Revelation 3.14 is used in the sense of origin. Beck's translation puts it the origin of God's creation. The Jerusalem Bible says the ultimate source of God's creation. For other scriptural passages which proclaim Jesus as a creator, see Ephesians 3.9. John 1, 1 to 3 and 14, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which we just read, and Colossians 1, 13 to 17. You know, I'd just like to pluck out one of those references, and let's have a look at it now and see if we can understand who Jesus is from this. We're in John 1, 1 to 3 and verse 14. There's a code in here. Let's see if we can break the code. Let the scripture interpret itself. Well, in the beginning was the word, hmm, mysterious. The uh, Greek word there is logos. And the word or the logos was with God and the word or logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Then we're given a clue down in verse 14 in John 1 of who this word or logos is. And the word was made flesh, John writes. The same John the Revelator is the same John the disciple of Jesus, who was a young boy when Jesus was on earth. So John the Revelator, John the disciple writes, and the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. So he's claiming there Jesus is God's son, full of grace and truth. Friends, we now have broken the code that Jesus actually is the word. And now we can read those verses again and understand it. We're looking at the origin and the power of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. There's often confusion about how can Jesus be God, because there's God the Father. God is the family name. It's a shorthand of, shorthand of the Godhead. So it just means Jesus was a part of the family of God. Verse 2, the same. Jesus or the word was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So once again, we're told that Jesus is the prime agent in the creation. Join me for question 11 or at the top of page five. We're asking now, is Jesus divine? Is Jesus Christ divine? Is he equal with God the father? We're going to Revelation 19, John 1 and Revelation 22. Revelation 19, 13 to 16. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. 
And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, we've already looked very closely at John 1, 1 and 14. We won't read it again, but we understand in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was equal to God and part of the Godhead. Friends, we've learned here very clearly that Jesus is the living word. Therefore, the Bible is the written word. And I've been challenging you tonight in a loving, kind and persuasive way to every morning plug in to the word of God for power. I want to ask you what's keeping you from plugging into God's word. Once you plug into this power, and I know what this power is, I've experienced it. It changes your life. It keeps you close to God every day. And so, friends, let us understand that Jesus is the living word, but God's ancient biblical writings, the scriptures, the Holy Bible are God's written word. We've already looked at this text and we found out there that Jesus is the Lord God of the holy prophets. At the end of that verse, he says, behold, I come quickly. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Friends, most people don't even know what the book of Revelation says. And those who know a little bit think that John was on some drug trip when he wrote it. Friends, Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. And so. Jesus, I believe, is about to come back in our time. We've asked the question, is Jesus God? My answer is yes, indeed, he is, but he's not the father. He is a part of the family of God, but he's not the father. Is there some way of explaining the Trinity in a very simple way that we can understand? I want to direct your attention to the screen. Please look on the screen. Friends, I've come up with a little model. And that is in the family of God, there is God, the eternal father. There is God, the son, known as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Then there is God, the Holy Spirit. So there we have father, son and spirit. And they are ranked one, two and three. Is there any model on earth that we can look at that would help us understand this family? Well, I'm sorry, but this isn't a great illustration. It used to be better 30 or 40 years ago. But friends, if we look at rank, we have a monarch, Queen Elizabeth. We have her son, her firstborn, and that is the crown prince, Charles. And then we have her grandson, which is the prince and heir. Now, I want you to notice here there is rank in both systems. There's father, son, and Holy Spirit. There's queen crown prince and heir to the throne. But notice that rank does not cancel out equality because although they're ranked one, two, and three, it's important to note that the sons of the queen are also equally human, or we hope they are, and their blood runs red, maybe more red than blue. So, friends, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are ranked as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but they are all equal. 
So in explaining the Godhead, the trio are called God. Some people call this trio the Trinity, but I prefer what the Bible calls them, and that is that they make up the Godhead in Acts 17 and verse 29. Well, here's another model that might be helpful. On the left, we have the sun. It has three parts, light, heat, and power. On the right, we have matter, which is three parts, solids, liquids, and gases. On the bottom right, we have space divided into length, breadth, and height. And on the left-hand lower side, we have time divided into past, present, and future. Notice in the center of this, we have the Father, who is God, but the Father is not the Son. We have the Son, who is God, but the Son is not the Father, nor is he the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, who is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and he's not the Son. These three entities exist in the one family called the God or the Godhead. Now, are they names or a name? Notice here in the screen, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said people were to be baptized in the name, one name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, I think that's a really simple way of understanding. The note says in Revelation, Jesus is called the Word of God, and John 1, 1 and 14 makes it clear that the Word is Jesus and that he is indeed God. For other verses of scripture which clearly point out the same thing. Please see 1 Timothy 3.16, Titus 3.4, and Hebrews 1 and verse 8. All right, friends, you have just finished the easy part of the lesson. You need to put your seatbelts on, batten down the hatches, get out your calculators, because now we're going into an amazing time prophecy. Please direct your attention to the screen because I have a lot of visuals coming on. What are we going to find out? Over 500 years before Jesus' birth, God foretold the exact year he would come. This astounding prophecy proves Jesus actually is the Messiah in an incontrovertible way. So friends on the screen, we have a 70-week or 490-year prophecy. But that word determiner means it is cut off from a greater prophecy of 2,300 days. We are going to notice our 70 weeks tonight, we're studying this in the main, is divided up into seven weeks, 62 weeks, which makes 69 weeks, and then there is one final week that's very, very significant that has to do with the Messiah. Our prophecy starts in BC 457 and ends in AD 34. So friends, if you notice on the screen, there is a 2300-day prophecy that is um, outlined in Daniel 8.14. But tonight, this uh, 70 weeks or 490 years is cut off. It's excised from the rest of the prophecy. In fact, the word there, 70 weeks are determined on thy people, is actually meaning in the Hebrew the following. The original word for determined in the Hebrew is the word Kathak, in many cases it meant severed from or cut off. Its literal meaning is divided. So friends, we're looking at a prophecy of 70 weeks or 490 years that's cut off the 2,300 day year prophecy. And I'm sure, sure you're glad that we're not going to study that tonight. So that's quite fantastic, isn't it? All right, would you join me now uh, halfway down page five? We're going to question 12. How much time does Daniel 9.24 tell us was allotted to the Jewish nation? 
to shape up or ship out. They were put on probation by God because they'd been so disobedient. They were chosen as his special people, but God said, you know what, this is a waste of time. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. There's our answer. Seventy works are determined upon thy people, Daniel, and upon thy holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Just to under help you understand what all those th things stand for, firstly, to bring uh, rebellion and sin to a close there, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins that would finish the Old Testament sanctuary service system, to make reconciliation for iniquity means to wipe away guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness is what the work of the Messiah would be to do, to seal up the vision of prophecy would be to fulfill Daniel's prophetic vision of the 490 and the 2300, and finally to anoint the most holy referring to the holy place and the most holy place in heaven where Jesus is working right now as our high priest. We'll cover that in a future lesson. How much time does Daniel 9.24 tell us was allotted to the Jewish nation? The answer is 70 weeks. If that's confusing to you, it's very simple. How many days in a week? So it's 70 weeks by seven days gives us 490 days. If you're not sure about that, as I said, get out your calculator. The note says, this solemn prophecy told the Jewish nation that God was giving them 490 years of privileged time. The writer is too kind. It was probationary time to shape up or ship out because God's people were continually sinning, rebelling, killing his prophets, killing his kings and killing his people. We're in question 13 at the bottom of page five. Using the Bible's prophetic rule of one prophetic day equals one literal year in Ezekiel 4.6. So how long is this 70-week time period? Good question. Let's go to two scriptures. Friends, this is a prophetic key. Number one, God said to Ezekiel, and I've just been reading a chapter of this every morning, spending an hour and a half in study, hour and hour and a half. I've appointed thee each day for a what? A year. This is what God told Ezekiel. But no doctrine or prophecy or teaching in the scripture stands or falls on one text. The Old Testament says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. So let's have another text on that. Very simply, it's stated in Numbers 14.34 by the Lord that they were to understand that each day was for a year. Remember the Spies spied out the land 40 days and they were then to go back around the wilderness of Sinai for another 40 days each day for a year. So from these two texts and others, we understand that in Bible prophecy, one day stands for one literal year. Now, we had a very good question that came in in the discussion time last week. And Brandon raised this with me, said in 2 Peter 3.8, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Brandon asked me, could not in Bible prophecy one day stand for a thousand years? I think that's a very good question. So let's apply that premise to the formula. So we have a 490-day prophecy. One day for each thousand years, according to Brandon's suggestion, that would make a 490,000 year prophecy. Hmm. Wow, that's a long prophecy, but it gets worse. 
The 2,300-day prophecy, if we apply the 1,000 years to that, that ends up at 2,300,000 years. In other words, 2.3 million year prophecy. Friends, I think you can realize that we can rule that out. And so I go back to the prophetic key that in Bible prophecy, one day stands for one literal year. When? All over the place? Here, there, and everywhere? No, only in Bible prophecy. Our answer is 490 days stands for 490 years. And if this is correct, then this all has to add up. Let's go to the note. 70 weeks times seven, the number of days in a week, equals 490 days. Since one prophetic day equals one literal year, then 490 prophetic days equals 490 literal years. Please come over the page with me and join me at the top of page six. All right. Some people said to me that last week the introductory lesson was a little bit basic. Well, I don't think you're going to be saying that tonight. We're going down deep and fast into this amazing time prophecy, the 490-year, 70-week prophecy. Question 14, when was this 70-week or 490-year time period to begin? We're going to Daniel 9.25a. Friends, can I just pause here and remind myself that my theology lecturer told us a wrong protology leads to a wrong eschatology. What was he talking about? If you start a prophecy on the wrong date, you will end the prophecy on the wrong date. So how important is it to get the right starting date? We're going to Daniel 9. We're just going to look at the first part of verse 25. There's a key here we want to fill into our answer in question 14. The angel said to Daniel in Daniel 9.25, and I studied this all last year in the online prophecy seminar that you can find at our website, True Blue SDA. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the what? The commandment, or we would say the command, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. We're going to stop there. There is our answer. When was this 70 week or 490 year time period to begin? The Bible tells us, nobody else, but Daniel tells us, the great prophet Daniel, from the angel, it starts from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. May I direct your attention now to the note, but don't look at the lesson. Look at the screen. It's fully illustrated. Do you remember that God's people were in captivity in Persia? The Lord had impressed the Persian king, King Artaxerxes, to make a decree which permitted all Jews who so desired to return to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild the city. Now, the decree is recorded in Ezra chapter 7. We're going to go and look at it in a moment. Two other Persian kings also made decrees prior to this, and I'm going to name them in a moment. But they referred only to the real rebuilding of the temple, not the city. Hence, they do not qualify. What's this all about? Please direct your attention now to the screen. We're going to jump away and explain this note under question 14 in the lesson. So what's this all about? When do these 70 weeks or 490 years begin? The lesson has suggested a date, but why do we choose that date? In Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, you might like to write this in. 
It says, and the elders of the Jews builded and finished it. What did they build and finish? After 49 years, they built and finished rebuilding the city of Jerusalem that had been sacked, destroyed, the walls destroyed and burnt. That is, they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. Now, it was a commandment because it was done according to the commandment of the God of Israel. But it was also done according to the commands of three Persian kings. King Cyrus, King Darius, some say Darius, and King Artaxerxes, all kings of Persia. So when did they do this? When did these 70 weeks or 490 years begin? And they built and finished the city and the temple according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus, who said the Jews can go home and rebuild the temple in 536 BC. Darius said to the Jews, you can go home because they all didn't go home. Some went home. Not many went home. You can go back and build the temple in 519. But in 457 BC, Artaxerxes said you can go back and rebuild the city and you can rebuild your temple. And then he gave a fourth decree in 444 BC that you can find in Nehemiah chapter 2. And just a few people went back then. The majority of the Jews went back to Jerusalem in the year 457 BC. We're suggesting that as a very significant date. Why is that? Friends, that is when the Jews went back and did the rebuilding of the city walls and the temple. And so, friends, that time begins in 457. It actually took seven weeks or 49 years. Now you're going, why did it take 49 years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple? Very simply, and we're going to explain it in a moment, while they were there and they went back, there were marauders, Samaritans and others who were living in the ruins who then formed an army to attack them as the Jews went back, tried to reclaim the city and tried to rebuild it. That's why it took 49 years. Have you ever built a house while people are firing spears and arrows at you? Join me in question 15. We're halfway down page six. So when exactly was this decree issued in Ezra 7, verse 7, 12 and 13? We're in Ezra 7 and verse 7. And there went up some of the children of Israel, meaning they went back to Jerusalem, and of the priests and the Levites and the singers, and the porters and the Nethanims. Who are the Nethanims? Well, of course, you know that. They're the temple servants. Where did they go? They went to Jerusalem. And when did they go? They went in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. There's our answer. Now, in our lesson guide, it's only got a tiny little gap there. So you might only have room to write in in the seventh year of Art the king stands for Artaxerxes. I read verse 12 and 13. Notice what the king said. I, Artaxerxes, king of kings, under Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace at such a time. I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. Friends, it's very, very clear in the scripture. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make it up. And those are not options. When was this decree issued? The answer was, it was the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And that was the year 457 BC, which we'll prove to you in a moment. What does the note say? Ezra 7, 7, 12 and 13 points out that the decree was issued in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Uh, 
Now, history shows us the king began to reign in 464 BC. Now, remember when going from a BC date to an AC date, when going from a BC date to an AD date, you have to subtract. So King Artaxerxes' seventh year would then be 457 BC because 464 minus 7 is 457 BC. The decree was implemented in the fall or the autumn of the year sometime after Ezra's, Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem. Well, I'm surprised if some of you aren't asking, is that really a real date? How can we know that's true? Let's go to Sir Isaac Newton's book, Observations on the Prophecies of Daniel. He's a reputable character and a scientist, and this is what he wrote. The years of Artaxerxes' reign are among the most easily established dates of history. Eh, what? The canon of Ptolemy, which is not a gun, but a book, with its list of kings and astronomical observations. The Greek Olympians and allusions in Greek history to Persian affairs all combined to place what? The seventh year of Artaxerxes at 457 BC beyond successful controversion, which just means it can't be contradicted. So friends, we find that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is given by King Artaxerxes in 457 and Ezra and Nehemiah go back. Why choose 457 BC? That's a very, very good question. We will get our answer from Daniel 9, 25a, where we started. There's two conditions. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Friends, here are the two ingredients. The decree must have a um, part where it's talking about the city of Jerusalem being restored and rebuilt, the city and the temple restored and rebuilt, and Jerusalem and the Jews to be restored as a nation. And we have that in Ezra 7, 25 to 27. Dating of Ezra 7? Yep, 457 BC. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God, King Artaxerxes writes, that is in thine hand set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Friends, that is a decree by King Artaxerxes that the Jews are to be restored as a nation. They are to self-rule. And that's where we get the word autonomy from, autonomous, self-ruling, self-running the laws. Notice there that the king says, if they're not going to follow the law of your God or the law of your king, that you can execute them. That means they got their power back. There's another ingredient in verse 27 that Ezra is amazed about. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, he said, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart. It's a miracle, isn't it? The king's letting all the slaves go home to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So there's the other missing ingredient. Not only must Israel and the Jews be restored as a nation, they must be allowed to go back and rebuild and they beautify the house of the Lord and they rebuild the city, the temple and the city are rebuilt. So friends, what do we learn in all this? Well, Cyrus said go back in 536, but not many of the Jews went home. Darius said go back in 519, not many people went home. But Artaxerxes, king of Persia in 457 BC said to go back and you can run yourselves. 
You're restored as a nation. He also said that they could rebuild the temple and the city. Friends, this fits the starting date. This is the correct date to start. And if we have the correct starting date, we'll have the correct finishing date. How many years till Jesus Christ would come as the Messiah as we move on? Well, Jesus would turn up after the seven weeks or 49 years to rebuild the temple. He would turn up 62 weeks later. So we're looking there from BC 457, the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. BC 408, we go back 49 years, then the temple is rebuilt and the city rebuilt. It's all finished. And then the time of the Messiah comes to AD 27 when Jesus is anointed as Messiah at his baptism. How many years is that? We add together the seven and 62, we get 69 weeks. And we add 49 together with 434 and we get 483 years till Messiah turns up from 457 BC. Join me in question 16. According to Daniel 9.24, how long was it to be from the decree of Artaxerxes till the Messiah appeared? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Why did it take seven weeks or 49 years to rebuild the temple? The scripture tells us the street in Jerusalem shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. The troublous times are that they were being fired on by the marauders who had taken the city over while they were in Babylon. So we've got some time periods to add up. We've got seven weeks. Then we're told there's three score and two weeks. A score is 20. So three score must be 60. We've got seven weeks. We've got 62 weeks. We've got a total of 69 weeks. We then get 69 weeks. We multiply it by seven days in the week. We come up with 483 days or 483 years. Here's our answer. According to Daniel 9.25, how long was it to be from the decree of Artaxerxes till the Messiah appeared? It will be 69 weeks or 69 weeks by seven days, which would be 483 days or 483 years. Let me share with you the note. 69 weeks times seven, the number of days in a week equals 483 prophetic days, which in Bible prophecy are 483 years. Mathematical calculations show if we begin in 457 BC and move 483 years into the future, that will reach the year 27 AD. Please pause and look at the screen, friends. But how does this actually work? If you crunch the numbers, it's not going to actually reach 27 AD. And maybe some of you have done the numbers. So let's have a look at the numbers. If we get 457 BC and we take away 483 years, we're going from a BC date to an AD date, we come to AD 26. However, there's a problem because when they went from the BC dates to the AD dates, they went negative three, negative two, negative one BC, then they went plus one AD, plus two AD, plus three AD, but there was no year zero. So we have to add one year in here because they calculated no year zero. What does this mean? Well, have a look on the screen. I think I actually, actually sent you this chart during the week. So friends, what are we looking at here? Well, have a look in the middle of BC and AD underneath there. There's no year zero. We must add one year when going from a BC to an AD date. 
So 483 minus 457 equals AD 26, which is over there on the right. But Jesus wasn't baptized to AD 27. And we can prove that from history. I now have an interesting question that you might not have thought of. And that is when Jesus starts officially his ministry in AD 27, do you know how old he is? Well, let's ask scripture. Luke 3, 21 and 23. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized. Verse 23, and Jesus himself began to be about how old? Jesus began to be about 30 years of age. All right, let's crunch the numbers. Jesus is what? He's 30 years old in AD 27 at his baptism. Therefore, we'd have to conclude he must have been born around BC 3. So we're asking the question, how is that even possible? Friends, you might not know, and I've done a lot of study on this year zero thing, that Dionysius Exegius, or Dionysius the Humble, a priest, actually came up with the BC AD dating just in a short period of time to this? No, the year he did it was 525 AD. So he does the dating 500 years and friends, if he gets it three years out, I'm not going to be upset with him. I think he did the best he could. But it's interesting for you to know that Jesus was 30 years old in AD 27. And I'm going to tell you why a little later, why he waited to 30 years old to begin his official ministry. So friends, if you'd like more details on this 490 year prophecy, go to our YouTube website, True Blue SDA. Notice there I have a lesson, Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13. If you'd like more on this topic and you'd like to understand the 2300 days, then please click on program number 13. It's called The Bible's Longest Time Prophecy. It covers this 490-70-week prophecy. It also covers the 2300-day year prophecy. Before we go to question 17, please look on the screen. There's a rule. We must add one year when we go from a BC to an AD date. For example, 457 minus 483 years takes us to AD 26. We have to one, add one year for the year zero, getting us to AD 27 for Jesus' baptism. But the same is true for the end of the prophecy. If we start with our starting date of 457 BC, uh, that is the King Artaxerxes starting date, and then we take away the 490, it takes us to our finishing date of AD 33. But the correct day is actually AD 34. The correct date is AD 34 because we have to add one year because we have to add one year for the missing year zero. We're at the top, or sorry, we're at the bottom now of page six and question 17. I hope you're still with me. I don't think anyone's asleep tonight. Did the Messiah appear in 27 AD? exactly 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 BC. We're going to Luke 3, 1 to 21 and 22. CF is just an English, is a Latin abbreviation for compare. Complute, compare Luke 3 with Acts 10, 38 and John 1, 41. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, that dates this chapter of the baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved son. 
in thee I am well pleased. So friends, how many years till Jesus would come as the Messiah? The answer is 483 years later, Jesus would appear in the year AD 27. Um, of course, year zero corrected and he'd be anointed as Messiah at his baptism. There's our answer. Did the Messiah appear in 27 AD, exactly 483 years after the decree of King Artaxerxes in 457 BC? The answer is yes. Jesus came right on time. Friends, if you're unsure of all the dates and prophecies tonight, there's only one thing you need to know. Jesus was born on time. He died on time and he will come back again on time. That's the point of the whole lesson. Would you join me at the top of page seven or on the screen? Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed. Did you know that? Messiah means the anointed one. But Christ is the Greek word for the same. Though Jesus was born the Son of God, he was not the Messiah or the anointed or the Christ until he was anointed. In Acts 10.38, it says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.21.22 says that the anointing of the Holy Ghost, which made him the Messiah, took place at his baptism. And Luke 3.1 points out that his baptism took place in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And history shows that the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar was 27 AD, the very same year Jesus was baptized, as prophecy had predicted. We're in question 18 on page 7. When Jesus began preaching after his baptism and anointing by the Holy Spirit, what did he say which indicated he knew about Daniel's prediction that he would be anointed and become the Messiah in 27 AD? In Mark 1, 14 and 15. Let's go to Mark 14, 1, 14 and 15. Now, after that, John was put in prison. That's not John the Revelator. That's John the Baptist. Remember the story and beheaded? Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. Did Jesus know what time it was? He absolutely did. He was saying, I am the Old Testament Messiah. I am the Christ. I've come on time. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Did Jesus know what time it was? He absolutely did. He said the time is fulfilled. The time is up. How utterly fantastic. There's no room for a mistake here. The Messiah appears right on time as predicted hundreds of years before by Daniel. He is indeed the Messiah, the son of God. And this gives us an unshakable foundation on which to stand. Now, I have another interesting point here. Did you know that Jesus Christ at this time in AD 27 was 30 years old? Why was he 30 years old? Because um, he needed to become our high priest. And you would know from the Old Testament times that men who were Jews and Levites could only become high priests and priests from the age of 30 onwards. Isn't that a fascinating fact? Jesus waited till the age of 30 before he began his official ministry as the son of God. And he ministered to Israel for three and a half of the seven years. And that's what we're about to finish off the study with tonight. Our final heading, heading five of five, is Jesus' crucifixion foretold. Fantastic, isn't it? We've now considered 483, meaning 69 of the 70 weeks or 483 years of the 490 years of privileged or probationary time given to the Jewish nation. One final week of the 70 original remains, which is one week 
seven prophetic days or seven literal years. What was to happen in the middle of that last week of seven years, friends? Be very, very clear that this is a period of one week or seven years, not the middle of a literal week. So there's no Wednesday crucifixion here. Daniel 9, 26 and 27. It says in Daniel 9, first part, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. What does it mean that the Messiah would be cut off? It means that Jesus would die, not for his own sins, but he would die for what? He would die for the sins of the world. Let's carry on in Daniel 9, 26, part B. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that's no reference to Jesus Christ because he did not stay and destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is a prince that shall come. Who is the prince that shall come? The scripture says, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. It would come very rapidly. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Friends, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were smashed, destroyed, and burned. We read on. Friends, who did this? The prince that was to come was General Titus and the Roman army. They were ruthless. And they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. The soldiers were told not to burn the Jewish temple, but someone threw in a flaming torch and the curtains went up. And apparently the reports say that the gold melted and ran down the, the stairs. Friends, it was a very, very tragic time. Let's go to Daniel 9 and verse 27. And he, that means the Messiah Jesus, would confirm the covenant, the agreement with Israel, the 490, the 70 weeks with many for one week. That final week, Jesus would preach for half of it he would preach to the jewish nation before they crucified him the other three and a half years the disciples would do it but in the midst of that week not a literal week no wednesday crucifixion here but in the midst of a prophetic week of seven years jesus would cause the sacrifice in the old testament sanctuary and the oblation which is the spread shedding of, which is the spreading of blood to cease and for the overspreading of abominations, he would make it desolate. No more sanctuary service. Why? Because the true lamb of God had died. And so the lambs could get away. Even until the consummation, which means even until the end of all things. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the Jewish nation and the city and the temple were all finished. And that was a great tragedy in AD 70. Friends, let's have a look now at that last final week of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the disciples. It starts in AD 27. Jesus dies in the middle of that week in AD 31. And it all wraps up in AD 34 when Stephen Stone, the Christians are scattered and the Jewish probation ends. And as I said, Jesus dies in the middle of that week. Let me read to you the note under question 19. So our answer is that Jesus was to be cut off or crucified. The scripture passage says Jesus was to be cut off in the middle of that last week. One half of seven years is three and a half years. Add three and a half years to the fall of 27 AD and you reach the spring of AD 31. In direct fulfillment of this prophecy, Jesus was indeed cut off or crucified in the spring of 31 AD. Jesus caused the sacrifice and the oblation, the spreading of blood in the Old Testament sanctuary to cease because he, as the Lamb of God, replaced the symbolic sacrificial lambs when he became the supreme sacrifice for all people 
upon the cross. More details in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Friends, you know that the priest was about to sacrifice the lamb in the Jewish temple and what happened to the curtain. Josephus says it was torn from the top to the bottom, not by human hands, possibly by the hands of an angel. That curtain was torn and the Shekinah glory was supposed to be there and pour out and the priest should have been killed. But what happened? The Shekinah glory, the glory of God had departed from the temple for the true lamb that you can see there dying on the cross had died, Jesus, the lamb of God. And so the earthly lamb you see there on the right can run away. We're at the top of page eight as we finish up our lesson tonight. Question 20, how much of this privileged or probationary time did the Jewish nation have left after 31 AD? And when did it end? So friends, we notice after AD 31, there's three and a half years left, which finish in AD 34, the end of the 490 year prophecy. It's three and a half years. Jesus would work for the Jewish nation for three and a half years. They would then kill him on the cross. The disciples would then preach and teach the Jewish nation for another three and a half years. And then something bad was going to happen. When did it end? We're going to find that out now. So Jesus died on the cross in AD 31. And then we have the three and a half years to make up the full seven years. And that happened. It all ended with the stoning of Stephen in AD 34. What is that all about? Friends, that is the end of the 70 week or 490 year prophecy. Here's the stoning of Stephen. What is going on here in AD 34? Friends, in history, the Jews had killed God's Old Testament prophets. Isaiah was sawed in half in a log. They had killed his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, God gives them one more chance and he sends Stephen, the New Testament evangelist, in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, if you want to look it up. And they stoned Stephen to death, the Jewish leaders, in AD 34. In fact, on the right-hand side, there is the man holding the robes, who is the great Pharisee named Saul, who will later be converted and known as Paul, the greatest apostle in the New Testament. Friends, bong bong, the Jewish time of probation, the 490 years, has now run out. The time for the Jews to shape up or ship out is over. Their 490 years of time is up. And so, friends, it all ends in AD 34. The first three and a half years of this seven-year period led us to the spring of AD 31, when Jesus was crucified. Adding the three and a half years remaining to 31 AD brings us to the fall of AD 34. At that time, the special period given to the Jewish people or the probationary time was closed, and the gospel was now to be given, not just to Jews, but wider and further afield to Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews had rejected Jesus Christ as Saviour and they'd killed him. And so the time of the 490 years ran out in AD 34 and the time was up. Question 21 is uh, pointing more to our day. How may both Jews and Gentiles today become part of God's chosen people and thus be saved? Some people are distressed that maybe Jewish people can't be saved because the Jews were cut off there and finished up as a nation, a salvific nation in AD 34. So how may both Jews and Gentiles today become part of God's chosen people and thus be saved? Let's go to Galatians 3.29. It says, and if ye, that refers to us also, 
if ye followers or believers of Jesus Christ, if you are Christ in Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, you're the descendants of Abraham, and your heirs are inheritors according to the promise made to Abraham back in ancient times. So friends, there's Old Testament times where there's literal Jews and literal Israel, but we belong to New Testament and Christian times, post-New Testament and Christian times, where there are spiritual Jews and spiritual Israel. You can see there on the screen that Philip the Evangelist on the left is witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. And I want to tell you, he was no Jew, but he was accepted into the new Christian church. So how may both Jews and Gentiles today become part of God's chosen people and thus be saved? If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Persons of all races may become part of God's chosen people by accepting Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Notice that Daniel 9.26 says Jesus was cut off, but not for himself. Jesus died for you and me that we might have eternal life. Let's go to our final question in the lesson. In the light of Jesus' matchless love, are you willing to serve and follow him? Friends, I have two texts that are not in the lesson. Write them down. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Friends, how much did Jesus love us? He loved us while we were his enemies, while we were plotting against him, while we're sinning and blaspheming against him. He still loved us. Another test and another text that's very precious to me on whether I want to follow this guy. John 15, 13. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus shows us how much he loves you and me by dying on the cross, the worst death, the slowest, most painful death you could die. Then he gives us a measure of who are really his friends in verse 14. Here's the test of obedience. He says, you are my friends if you what? If ye do whatsoever I command you. You know, a lot of people in the world today claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, but they don't, follow, they don't follow what he says and they don't follow his word. In the light of Jesus' matchless love, are you willing to serve and follow him? I wrote in there, yes, I want to. Friends, we started tonight with our discovery theme questions. What does Jesus Christ really look like? We started in Revelation 1 that he was clothed in white with a thunderous voice and was seen as bright as the sun. When did God choose that Jesus should die for the sins of the world? The ancient biblical writings say that Jesus was chosen to die even before the world was created, and that'll be in the quiz. What special time period in the Old Testament proves Jesus is really the prophesied Messiah? The 70 weeks or 490-day year prophecy assures us that Jesus Christ came on time. Finally, in what years was Jesus baptized and later crucified? Can we know those dates? He was baptized absolutely in AD 27 and was put to death in AD 31 by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. It was great to have so many of the children doing the quiz with us. There's going to be some prizes, a $100 Bible gift voucher, two $50 Bible gift vouchers. For those who are keen to do the exam, which is in Lesson 24, you can start on that. There's a question from our lesson tonight. Who is the being standing among the candlesticks? There's our question tonight from Lesson 2, and there's not a question till Lesson 5. So some of you will want to do that at the end of the course. Some of you will want to do it as we go along. We have three response questions in boxes one to three on the left. Thank you for printing out those envelopes and sending them in to me via email or SMS. 
Question number one, if tonight's study made sense to you, please place the tick in box number one. It's good for me to look at those responses and see if the teaching is being clear. By the way, tonight was a big lesson. It was a big lesson for me to remember those 190 slides. Question number two, if you want me to pray that you become more acquainted with the star of the drama of Revelation and sense his presence in your life right now, then connect with Jesus and please tick box number two and connect with Jesus every morning. That's the best time. Let's do our quiz questions. Thank you for writing true or false, not a T that looks like an F or an F that looks like a T. Now, questions are straightforward tonight. As we do each one, please lock in your answer and then I'll give you the answer. Question number one, Jesus is called by many names and titles in the book of Revelation. Do you remember this? Okay, I think you'll know the answer. True or false, please lock in your answer now. And the answer is true. Number two, Jesus is described in a glorious way in Revelation chapter one. True or false? Lock it in. The answer is absolutely true. Number three, by accepting Jesus as my personal saviour from sin, I become a part of the royal family of God. True or false? Okay, lock in your answer. True or false? And the answer is true. Number four, after the fall of humanity, God then decided to send Jesus to help save us from our sins. True or false? Lock it in. The answer is false. I think we've had our first false answer over these two quizzes. And number five, one prophetic day in Bible prophecy equals one literal year. True or false? Lock it in. If you don't know that answer, I'd be surprised. The answer is true. So thanks, friends, for putting your name. RSO2 on there, put your score at the top, and SMS or email that to me. I enjoy getting those. All right, in our Revelation Seminar Wall of Truth, as we finished last week, we started in Lesson 1, Revelation, the open book, and learned that the Bible can interpret itself. You don't need to be a scholar. Tonight, we learned that Jesus is the star of the book of Revelation, and we learned that our God is a God on time, that Jesus was born on time, he died on time, and therefore he will come again on time in the second coming. Friends, next week we have the villain of the drama of Revelation. Please pray for next week's program. Sometimes the internet can fail. All sorts of problems happen with the computer. You know what I'm talking about. What are we going to learn next week? What are five names for Satan? Where did Satan come from? Who created Satan the devil? How did he become the devil? And why didn't God destroy him? Friends, this is a fascinating topic. I'm looking forward to you joining me either here on Zoom or on YouTube. It's a battle for the throne. Make sure you take time out. You'll get so much more out of the lesson if you can do that yourself. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, we come before you with praise and thanksgiving. Tonight, Lord, we've discovered Jesus' origin, that he's divine, that he's a major part of the Godhead, that he is our Messiah, and that he will come again on time. Thank you for this amazing time prophecy that proves that the Bible is true and that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. Bless everyone as they continue to study the great themes in the book of Revelation. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Let all the people say, Amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us for Jesus, the star of the drama of Revelation. Uh, it's still not late, too late for friends, families, neighbours, workmates to join either on Zoom or YouTube. And I look forward to seeing you next week 
and I'll say thank you and good night. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word, that's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.